Hello, listeners of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. My name is Gary Chirot of the French History Podcast. Ryan has been kind enough to let me invite you to check out our own podcast since our two tales have recently been overlapping. The French History Podcast covers France from three million years ago to present with episodes every week. Our last episode was on the Greek city-state of Massalia, founded on what is today Marseille by Anatolian Greeks around 600 BCE, Massalia grew into an empire that vied with Carthage for dominance of the western Mediterranean. Furthermore, Massalia served as the crossroads between the Mediterranean world and the Atlantic world, as it was the major hub of trade with Celtic peoples. If you'd like to hear more about this Greek empire that blossomed so far from home, check out the French History Podcast. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Ryan. And now, on with the show. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 90, The Road to War. Today's episode is brought to you by our new March Patreon supporters, Melanie Paluta, Scott Shoemaker, and Taylor Nossenbaum. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the History of Ancient Greece, you can become a monthly Patreon supporter or a one-time donor at PayPal. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. On the last episode, we discussed the mid-5th century BC history of two areas that were important, economically and politically, to Athens, the west and the northeast, as well as two events that tested the Thirty Years' Peace, the Samian Revolt and Corsirian and Corinthian hostilities over Epidamnus. As things stood at the end of 433 BC, The Thirty Years' Peace was beginning to break down, or at the very least was starting to fray at the edges. Operationally, the Athenians' efforts at Epidamnus were a success, as Corsaira and their fleet had been saved, but Pericles' policy of deterrence was a strategic failure, as the Athenian fleet's arrival had not deterred the Corinthians from fighting the Corsairians, which ultimately drew the Athenians into the battle. Frustrated and angry, Pericles' enemies were even more determined to bring the Spartans and their allies into the war at the cost of Pericles' reputation. Also, Thucydides, not the historian, was back from his 10-year ostracized exile. And not coincidentally, conservative attacks on radical Democrats intensified. At the same time, although Pericles still preferred peace, he began to prepare for what seemed like an eventual war at least against Corinth, while continuing to try to avoid entangling Sparta in the entire Peloponnesian League. Even before the Battle of Sabota, in the early spring of 433 BC, 
Steps had been taken by Pericles to ensure financial flexibility in any upcoming war. Although the so-called Periclean building program may have been a way to alleviate unemployment during times of peace, during times of war, it would become a financial burden on the state. So in 434-433 BC, a series of financial decrees were proposed and moved by Callius for the Athenians to put their finances in good order. First, they were to curtail spending on this expensive building program on the Acropolis in order to conserve their financial resources in case hostilities broke out, a result of which was the Propyleia was left unfinished. Second, they were to spend any excess funds on building up the walls and dockyards at Piraeus. Third, they stipulated that any further expenditure from the reserve funds beyond a very low annual limit was made subject to a special vote of sanction in the ecclesia. And fourth, they authorized the removal of treasure from the outlying temples in the Attic countryside and lower part of Athens, and concentrated them on the Acropolis, where they would be safe and readily available if the state needed to use them. These measures were clearly taken in anticipation of war hostilities, as public finance was shifted towards creating a war fund, and the fear of a Spartan invasion of Attica necessitated the withdrawal of treasure from the outlying temples in Attica that laid beyond Athens' long walls. At the same time, after the Battle of Sabota, on their voyage home, the Corinthians had seized and colonized Anactorion on the northwestern part of the region of Acarnania, which sat on the mainland facing opposite of Corsaira. This led the Athenians to take actions in order to shore up their positions in northwestern Greece as well, and so in the spring of 432 BC, Formio led an expedition intended to aid the Amphilochians and Acarnanians on the northwestern coast of Greece against the Corinthian colony of Ambracia. The result was that the Athenians gained Acarnania as an ally. The Athenians also shored up their positions in southern Italy and Sicily as Diotimus was dispatched to make a goodwill cruise from Athens to Naples, via Regium and Leontini, where treaties with Athens and these Ionian city-states were renewed. And so these moves all indicate that as early as the late 430s BC, the Athenians had envisioned a war in which the Northwest and the West could become relevant theaters. Furthermore, over the winter 433-432 BC, Two significant events took place that were decisive in bringing about the war, because of which, according to Plutarch, Pericles claimed to see war coming out of the Peloponnese. Following actual fighting taking place between Athenians and Corinthians at the Battle of Sabota, the chances for war between the Athenians and the Peloponnesian League had now increased. And in the months following the Battle of Sabota, Athens issued several problematic decrees against two poles. Potidaea and Megara, who had direct or indirect connections to the Peloponnesian League. The city of Potidaea sat on an isthmus at the narrowest point of the Peleni Peninsula, which was the westernmost of the three peninsulas at the southern end of the Halkidiki in northern Greece. Basically, the Halkidiki looks like three fingers that stick out into the northern Aegean from Thrace. Although Potidaea was a colony of Corinth, they were also a member of the Athenian alliance. Because Greek colonies were fully autonomous, there was nothing illegal about this. But in a climate of escalating tensions, Potidaea's ambiguous identification was likely to be a source of strain between Athens and Corinth. The potential difficulties were aggravated by the fact that Potidaea's relationship with Corinth was everything that Corsairas was not. 
whereas Corsaira was the proverbial bad colony, acting independently from Corinth in all things and engaging in outright hostilities, as we have seen. Potidea was extraordinarily close to Corinth and even went so far as to accept Corinthians as its annual magistrates. And so, knowing that the Corinthians were planning revenge after Sabota, the Athenians feared that the Potidaeans might rebel against them and join their mother colony. From there, a rebellion might spread to other states in the Aegean and cause serious problems in the empire, similar to what Athens experienced with Samos and Byzantium. The proximity of Potidaea to Macedonia only complicated an already difficult situation, as Macedonia was still a valuable source of timber for shipbuilding, not only for Athenian ships, but for Corinthian ones as well. Furthermore, as we have discussed, the northern Aegean was a region of immense importance to the Athenians. Apart from its richness in natural resources and its favorable trading location, it also was the main bulwark against the eastward expansion of Macedon, whose current king, Perdiccas II, was no longer on friendly terms with Athens, thanks to the Athenians' backing of his brother Philip I, who unsuccessfully challenged him to the throne. So over the winter of 433-432 BC, without any specific provocation from Potidaea, the Athenians ordered the Potidaeans to destroy their walls that protected them on the side facing the sea, to provide hostages to Athens, and to dismiss their annually received Corinthian magistrates. These steps were intended to remove the city from Corinthian influence and to place it at the mercy of Athens. Taking no action might invite rebellion, while sending a military force to assert physical dominance might be too provocative. This action, then, can be seen as a moderate choice between two unwelcome extremes. Without a doubt, though, these were tough demands on a city that had committed no wrong, and this harsh treatment of their colony was bound to upset the Corinthians. Unsurprisingly, the Potidaeans refused Athens' demands. So in response, the Athenians raised Potidaea's tribute from 6 to 15 talents a year. Desperately, the Potidaeans sent an embassy to Athens to negotiate a retraction of their demands, but the Athenians were not prepared to compromise. Discussions continued throughout the winter of 433-432 BC, but after several unsuccessful attempts to negotiate with the Athenians, the Potidaeans secretly sent envoys to the Peloponnesians, just as the Thasians had once done to ask them that if they rebelled and were attacked by Athens, would they help them by invading Attica. Thucydides reports that Corinthian envoys helped them extract a promise from at least some Spartan authorities, probably the ephors, that Sparta would in fact invade Attica if Potidaea were to be attacked. But military action from either Corinth or Sparta here would have been a violation of the Thirty Years' Peace Treaty, since Potidaea was a listed Athenian ally. So even if Athens' behavior was harsh and unjustified, Corinth and Sparta had no more legal right to intervene directly in Potidaea than they had at Samos. The first to involve themselves in the Potidaean affair, though, was not the Corinthians or the Spartans, but the Macedonians. As we mentioned, once an Athenian ally, King Perdiccas II of Macedon had been alienated by Athens' support of a relative who challenged his right to the throne. As a result, Perdiccas not only encouraged the Spartans to move against Athens and urged the Corinthians to raise a revolt in Potidaea, but he also fomented a rebellion against Athens among the cities in the Halkidiki and Bodica, the region just north of the Halkidiki, because if these places could be made Peloponnesian allies, it would be easier to carry on the revolt with their cooperations. 
As a result, the Corinthians also entered into a secret alliance with the Halkidian and Batian cities. Meanwhile, the Potidaeans had sent envoys on one last diplomatic mission to Athens, on the off chance that they might be persuaded this time. Unsurprisingly, negotiations here failed again, and so after receiving word that they had assurances from Sparta that they would invade Attica, Potidaea officially joined the Halkidians and Bodians in revolt. Collectively, Thucydides refers to the rebellious Thracian Greek cities from here on out as the Halkidian League. Perdiccas then encouraged the Halkidians to abandon and demolish their cities on the coastline and to settle inland at Olynthus, where they were to gather all of their resources into one place and fortify just that one city as it would be much harder for Athens to defeat a united resistance rather than a disjointed one. For those who took his advice and gave up their cities and land, he promised to give them a part of his territory in Mygdonia, the region around Lake Bulbe, to settle once the war with Athens was over. And so they did as he suggested and demolished their cities, moved inland, and prepared for war with Athens. Needless to say, Athens had quite a problem on their hands in the northern Aegean by the spring of 432 BC. The Athenians, though, before the rebellion had officially broken out, had suspected that such things might happen due to their harsh demands on Potidaea and refusal to waver. And so, they had preemptively sent a fleet of 30 ships and a 1,000 hoplites under the overall command of Archistratus to Potidaea in order to forcibly take down the defensive walls that Potidaea had on the seaside so that they would be vulnerable to the Athenian fleet without question which would presumably deter a rebellion. They were also told to be on their guard against the revolt of any neighboring cities, but that fleet didn't arrive fast enough as they found the Potidaeans already in rebellion and allied with Perdiccas. And so Archistratus settled down in Macedonia to wage war there first, in cooperation with Perdiccas's younger brother, Philip I, and King Dardus of Elmiatis, who invaded Macedon from the north. With these 1,000 hoplites and 30 ships, the Athenians managed to capture Thermae, which sat on the coastline near the border of Macedon and Mygdonia. They then went westwards around the Thermaic Gulf to besiege Pydna, and so the Athenians had technically entered into a state of war with Macedon in order to weaken the rebellion of Potidaea. The Corinthians responded to all of this by sending 2,000 total troops, 1,600 hoplites, and 400 light infantrymen to Potidaea under the command of Aristeus to help defend it against the Athenians. However, Thucydides describes them as being privately sent, meaning that they were not official Corinthian soldiers, but volunteers. Included with these Corinthian volunteers were Peloponnesian mercenaries. The Corinthians did this unofficially because they knew that the Athenians, under the treaty, had every right to suppress a rebellion in their empire, and that if they officially sent their own forces, they would have been guilty of breaking the treaty and thus provoking a larger war. Aristeus, who was the son of Adamantus, the Corinthian commander during the Persian Wars, and who commanded the Corinthian fleet at the Battle of Leukimi, was able to recruit volunteers and mercenaries to fight alongside him, largely due to his and his family's popularity at home and his long-standing alliance with Potidaea. Thucydides says that 40 days after the revolt of Potidaea kicked off, Aristeus and his volunteers arrived in Thrace and encamped at Olynthus. When the Athenian ecclesia received the news of the Halkidian League revolt and that Corinth was on their way to Potidaea with forces, 
Athens sent out another 2,000 hoplites and 40 ships under the command of Callias. These Athenian troops first traveled to Macedon, where they met up with the other Athenian contingents that were still currently besieging Pydna. After the two forces combined and continued to assault Pydna, the overmatched Perdiccas reluctantly rescinded on his alliance with Potidaea. The Athenians in exchange handed Thermae back over to Perdiccas, stopped besieging Pydna, and withdrew their troops from Macedonian territory. The Athenian army then marched eastwards towards Potidaea with their combined forces of 3,000 hoplites and 400 Macedonian cavalry, who were the followers of Philip I, as the 70 ships followed closely along the coast. After three days of advancing on Potidaea in short marches, the Athenian forces encamped at Gagonis in the northwestern Halkidiki on the coast directly west of Olynthus. Potidaea was to the southwest of Olynthus and to the southeast of Gagonis, so you can kind of think of these locations as being a leg of a left-facing isosceles triangle. In their preparation for the Athenian attack at Potidaea, the allied Potidaeans and Peloponnesians also encamped on the northern side of the Isthmus, facing Olynthus, and chose Aristeus as commander of the allied infantry. At the same time, they also established a makeshift market outside of the city. Greek soldiers and sailors at this time were expected to purchase their food from a local market with their own money, which made prompt disbursement of military pay quite important. For a city to offer a special market at a convenient location for foreign military personnel was a polite and presumably profitable amenity, but it also helped to keep them and the shenanigans that they can get into outside of their city. Anyways, almost immediately after Athens left Macedon, Perdiccas backed out of his alliance with them and returned to helping the Potidaeans, and so he was made commander of the Allied Cavalry. Aristeus' next move was to keep his infantrymen on the Isthmus to await the Athenian attack. At the same time, the Halkidians and the other allies waited outside the Isthmus, while the 200 cavalry from Perdiccas stayed in Olynthus to attack the Athenian rear. By doing this, Aristeus developed a plan that would sandwich the advancing Athenian army between two forces, one on the Isthmus and one at Olynthus. But Callias had rightly guessed that there would be some sort of trouble coming out of Olynthus, and so he had sent his Macedonian cavalry and a few of his allies to that location ahead of time to prevent any movement being made from there, while the rest of the Athenians left their camp at Gagonis and marched on Potidaea. As the Athenians approached the Isthmus, both sides raised their signals and positioned for battle. Meanwhile, Perdiccas and the reserve force of Macedonian cavalry stationed near Olynthus, which is about seven miles away from Potidaea, were able to see when the battle signals had been raised, and so they attempted to engage the Athenian rear. But Philip's Macedonian horsemen and the Athenian army cut them off, and after an initial skirmish, they retired back behind the wall. And so, there ended up being no cavalry for either side in the ensuing battle. As the two infantries clashed, Aristeus's right wing of Corinthian troops and other chosen men routed a section of the Athenian left wing and pursued them for a considerable distance northwards. At the same time, the Athenian right was much more successful, as the contingent of Potidaeans and Peloponnesian mercenaries on their left wing met a different fate. Eventually, they were routed by the Athenians and were forced to take refuge within the fortifications of Potidaea. It wasn't until Aristeus returned from pursuing the Athenians 
that he realized that the rest of his army had been defeated, and so he quickly had to choose his next plan of action, whether to go to Olynthus or to Potidaea. Once he made his decision, he assembled his men and marched them at a run towards Potidaea. Hoping to avoid the main Athenian army, he led them along the breakwater and crossed the sea under a storm of missiles from Potidaea's fortifications. Although some were hit by arrows and other projectiles during the rush, upon making landfall, Aristeus saw that most of his men had made it safely ashore to Potidaea. Presumably, most were able to guard themselves against the missile attacks with their massive hoplite shields. When the battle concluded, the Athenians set up a trophy and under truce, they returned the dead to the Potidaeans. After a hoplite battle in ancient Greece, the victors would gather up their own dead, strip those of the enemy, and raise a trophy with pieces of their enemy's equipment. The defeated then would collect the bodies of their fallen during a truce that they had to explicitly request and were usually granted. In this way, appropriate reverence was shown and proper burial was accorded to all war dead. In total, the Potidaeans and their allies had around 300 casualties, while the Athenians lost about 150, including their general Callias. We know of two Athenians who didn't die though, Alcibiades and Socrates. Alcibiades was a young kinsman of Pericles, who he took in as his own after Alcibiades' father was killed in action. He had several famous teachers, most notably the philosopher Socrates, and the two were said to be constant companions. Despite his teacher's well-known temperament, Alcibiades had already become notorious for escapades that even the sober Pericles couldn't keep under control. As an 18-year-old, he was now eligible for his first taste of military action. Socrates at this point was in his late 30s, and so he was a hardened hoplite veteran. When his name appeared on the call-up list, it was his duty to appear bearing his hoplite armor for the expedition. In Plato's Symposium, Alcibiades recounts how Socrates valiantly saved his life outside the walls of Potidaea. The young Alcibiades had fought so rashly that he often exposed himself to enemy fire, and so at one point, he was struck by a missile and fell on the battlefield. But Socrates had stayed on guard, shielding the wounded Alcibiades from further missiles until a rescue party reached them. After the battle, Formio awarded Alcibiades with the coveted prize for valor, which was a complete bronze hoplite panoply. But Alcibiades eagerly insisted that the prize should be given to Socrates since he saved his life. The outcome of the war would have been quite different if Alcibiades died here, but we are getting ahead of ourselves once again and we will return to both Alcibiades and Socrates in future episodes. After the Battle of Potidaea ended, the Athenians at once built and controlled a counterwall on the northern side of the Isthmus, consolidating their forces there. They left the Pelene side unmanned, meaning the southern side of Potidaea, because they did not think that their forces were strong enough at that point to divide them, and thus to make them susceptible to being attacked by the Potidaeans and their allies. When news reached the Athenian Ecclesia that they needed more troops to complete the besiegement of Potidaea from both sides, it was voted on to reinforce them with another 1,600 hoplites under the command of Formio. Upon their arrival at the Pelene Peninsula, Formio made his headquarters at Aphitis, which was to the south of Potidaea. He then led his men slowly up from the south in short marches, ravaging the countryside as they advanced. The Potidaeans didn't send out an army to meet them, though. And so when they arrived, Formio and his army began to construct a counterwall against Potidaea on the southern side of the isthmus, 
to complete the city's besiegement. At the same time, Athenian ships were deployed around the peninsula and succeeded in cutting Potidaea off from the sea with a naval blockade, which now gave Athens control of Potidaea by both land and sea. Meanwhile, the Corinthian commander Aristeus saw the writing on the wall and came to the realization that the Pelene Peninsula was now unsalvageable. Although the conflict was all but finished, Aristeus remained with the Halkidians, as he had personally promised them that he would assist them in their rebellion, and so he wasn't going to abandon them and break his promise. However, he instructed his remaining troops to evade Athenian ships and to all sail away home for the winter, as he intended to purchase fresh mercenaries for the following year. And so, Aristeus was in communication with cities in the Peloponnese over the winter, both looking for mercenary hoplites, but also for any word on when the agreed-upon Spartan invasion would be forthcoming. At the same time, over the winter, Formio led his men in a successful campaign against Athens' enemies in the Halkidiki and Bodica, and in the next year, in the spring of 432 BC, he again led an army attacking the rebellious cities in those two regions, some of which were taken by him. The siege of Potidaea was still ongoing into the summer of 432 BC. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Babbel. As a classicist, I focused more on reading ancient languages, like Greek and Latin, and I've always regretted that I never focused on learning to speak other languages. But now I'm choosing to rectify that with Babbel the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language with confidence. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Dutch, Danish, English, French, German, Indonesian, Italian, Norwegian, Polish, Brazilian Portuguese, Russian, Swedish, Spanish, and Turkish. Babbel is designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks. Lessons are created by over 100 language experts, real people, not by a translation machine. You learn through interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology, so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. You can try Babbel for free. Download the app or text history to 484848. Text history to 484848 to try Babbel for free. That's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y to 484848. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. As we mentioned, Spartan authorities, probably the Ephors, had pledged to the Potidaeans that Sparta would invade Attica. However, this was done in secret and was not endorsed by the Spartan assembly. And so, Sparta did not send troops to Potidaea once the rebellion was launched. That's because neither their king Archidamus II nor a majority of the Spartans was yet prepared to go to war with Athens. But an influential faction was, and so they bided their time, waiting eagerly for something to happen that they could use to change the minds of their fellow Spartans. And it just so happened that while the Potidaeans were under siege, another important event took place over the winter of 433-432 BC, which had to do with Megara, and which would change more and more Spartans' views towards war with Athens. We are unsure if the Potidaea decree came before or after this, But at a certain point, the Athenians began to pass a series of decrees in the assembly against Megara. We are unsure on how many specifically, but there may have been as many as four Megarian decrees, as they are known. But specifically, it is the exclusion or embargo decree that is considered the most contentious one. 
This decree forbade the Megarians from using the harbor of Piraeus, from using the Agora of Athens, and from using any of the other ports of the Athenian Empire. The official explanation for the decrees were that it was provoked for three reasons. First, the Megarians had illegally encroached on a patch of sacred land that was claimed by the Athenians on their borderlands. Second, the Megarians had killed an Athenian herald who was sent to their city to reproach them about encroaching on their sacred land. And third, the Megarians were harboring fugitive slaves who had fled from Athens. This sacred land, called the Hira Orgas, literally the sacred meadow, was a circular, fertile area of land sacred to the Eleusinian goddesses, Demeter and Persephone. It was probably situated on the Megarian side of the northernmost reaches of the Iapis River, in the borderland between Athens and Megara. As no boundary markers, or horoi, have survived, it is not possible to be more specific. But its location between the two states meant that control of the land was always going to be controversial. In fact, Megara and Athens had a history of territorial conflict dating back to the time of Solon. Prohibitions on the use of sacred land outside the cities, similar to the Hira Orgas, were common in Greek states throughout the classical period, and a range of laws and customs protected many sacred sites in the countryside from deliberate or accidental contamination by people and livestock. Although the Athenians seem to have considered the Hira Orgas to be a sacred precinct, or temenos, which was to be kept untouched and protected under religious law, this view does not seem to have been shared by the Megarians, at least. And so the Athenians believed that the cultivation of the Hira Orgas was a distinct religious pollution, or miasma, which, if left unresolved, would anger the gods and therefore compromise the ongoing fertility and well-being of the state itself. Although the Megarians are not recorded as having denied the three accusations leveled at them, their ambassadors did complain about the severity of the Athenian response. It is entirely possible that Pericles used the dispute for his own political purposes, though. Those scholars who blame Athens for causing the outbreak of the war argue that this religious motive was merely a convenient pretext for Pericles to disguise the real purpose of the decree. And if the primary motive had been religious, the exclusions, which were commercially motivated, should have specified the obvious religious meeting places and events from which the Megarians were to be banned. Since it didn't, it was clearly an economic motive. Regardless, it is more likely that the embargo really came about because when the Corinthians had fought the Corsairians, the Megarians were among the few Peloponnesian allies who showed up to help the Corinthians at Sabota. So it was important for the Athenians, led by Pericles, not to allow what the Megarians had done to go unpunished, because they wanted to deter other Peloponnesian allies from doing the same the next time. Once again, the Athenian action here can be viewed as a sort of moderate response. To have done nothing might have encouraged Megara and other states not only to come to Corinth's aid in Potidaea, but also in any future hostility with the Athenians. Likewise, to attack the city by military force would have violated the peace treaty and brought Sparta into the war against Athens. As far as we know, embargoes had not yet been employed in peacetime in the ancient world. So yet again, it seems that Pericles invented a new diplomatic idea, the embargo, which can be used as a diplomatic weapon as a means of coercion that's short of direct warfare. Pericles wasn't trying to wipe them out, but instead he was trying to show the other Peloponnesian allies that the Athenians could hurt them in ways that they had not been hurt before, without going to war and dragging the Spartans into it. Although the embargo would not bring Megara to its knees, 
It appears that it caused severe discomfort to most Megarians, as it brought about significant economic harm to those Megarians who prosper directly or indirectly from trade with Athens and its empire, which more than likely was most Megarians. Not just the merchants, but also the farmers. In Aristophanes' play, The Acarnians, the main character, Dicaeopolis, reviews the causes of the war, and in doing so, he mentions how the decree had left the Megarians slowly starving and caused them to appeal to the Spartans for aid. Since there were very few Greek ports not in the hands of the Athenian Empire, their claim that they were simply regulating their own sphere of influence would have been seen as disingenuous. Plainly, the Megarian economy was devastated by these sanctions, and the Athenians could hardly have expected that the Spartans would sit idly by while their allies suffered so conspicuously. And so there is no doubt that the decree would be a contributing factor in bringing about the war. In fact, many scholars, both ancient and modern, who attribute responsibility for the war to Athens, and in particular Pericles, cite this event as the main reason for their blame. Other scholars, though, actually interpret the Megarian decree quite differently, relying on the nature of trade in the ancient world. Their contention is that very few Megarian citizens were actually involved in trade, as the great majority of trade was handled by foreigners or resident aliens called medics, who would still be able to operate freely in the markets and ports of Athens and its allies, since they were not Megarian citizens. They could sell Megarian goods wherever, and then could bring back whatever they had bought to sell in Megara. Their theory is backed with the fact that there is no source evidence anywhere that speaks of produce being specifically banned, just Megarian citizens. They then argue that the reason that the Megarians could be shown as starving in several of Aristophanes' plays is because during the first part of the year, as we will see, the Athenians invaded the Megarid twice every year with very large forces in order to ravage their crops and they also maintained a sea blockade. In addition, the decree itself was only really active for less than a year anyways, because once the war had broken out, the Megarians and their goods would have had no right of entry at Athenian ports during wartime, as was the standard operating procedure for enemy combatants at war. And so they argue that the decree did not cause such devastating economic consequences for Megara, believing instead that Sparta was deliberately exaggerating the importance of the decree to test the Athenians' nerve and to see how much they could exploit them. It also has been suggested that the Corinthians may have urged the Megarians to cultivate the sacred land in order to provoke the Athenians into a hostile reaction and thus give cause for complaint. Most scholars, though, are in the camp that believe that the decree had significant economic impact on Megara. Regardless, it is through the Megarian decree that possibly best illustrates the choices that Thucydides, and all historians for that matter, must make when writing history. He downplays the significance of the Megarian decree to a remarkable degree, saying almost nothing about it, and instead put more emphasis on the conflicts over Potidaea and Corsaira in his analysis of the cause of the war. He did this, presumably, either because he really believed that the decree was unimportant, which is unlikely, he didn't understand economics very well, which is possible, or because he wished to deflect criticism from Pericles, which is more likely. That's because, even more than the other actions taken by the Athenian ecclesia during the build-up to the war, the sanctions against Megara and his subsequent refusal to revoke them were associated solely with Pericles, whereas Corsaira and Potidaea were atii, or grounds for complaint, in which Athens had a good case for intervention. The Megarian decree was open to criticism, and many people in fact criticized Pericles for it. 
The plays of Aristophanes and Plutarch's Life of Pericles make it clear that at least some considered the friction with Megara pivotal in bringing on the war, and scattered references can be found in Thucydides that confirms this. If Aristophanes' account were to reflect Athenian public opinion, Thucydides is perhaps reacting against that, and if the suggestion that Pericles had disreputable personal reasons for not giving in to Megara was widespread, it would not suit Thucydides, as an admirer of Pericles, to dwell on that. Still though, despite the fact that at least some of Pericles' contemporaries blame the war on this decree, and for him using it, he would defend it stubbornly to the end, even when it appeared that it had become the sole issue on which war or peace depended. In fact, in one anecdote told by Plutarch, when Pericles insisted that the text of the Megarian Exclusion Decree could not be taken down, and an opponent retorted that it should then be turned to face the wall for all of its shame. Pericles, though, was a personal friend of Archidamus, who was the most influential king of Sparta at this time, and who also favored peace. So he probably expected that the Spartan leader would perceive his peaceful intentions and the limited purposes of his Megarian decree. While this was probably true for Archidamus, Pericles underestimated the passions that had been aroused in other Spartans by the combination of events that had taken place in the last three years. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is also brought to you by Lightstream. You know what's great about credit cards? The freedom they give to do the things in life that we really want, and sometimes need to do. Dinner out? Here's my card. New tires for the car? Here's my card. But what's not so great are the high interest rates. Most people just accept the high interest rates that credit cards charge as a necessary evil. We say to ourselves, what are we going to do? Well, here's what you can do. Get a low fixed rate credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream and pay off those credit card balances. You can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000 and you can get your money as soon as the day you apply. The average credit card company charges over 19% APR, but with Lightstream, you can get a fixed rate as low as 6.14% APR with auto pay. Now you can pay off high interest credit cards and save money with a much lower rate. Want an even lower interest rate? Apply today at lightstream.com slash THOAG and get an additional interest rate discount. That's lightstream.com slash THOAG for an additional discount. L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash THOAG. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash THOAG for more information. It was now the late spring, or early summer, 432 BC, and with Potidaea still under siege, the Corinthians feared that they would capitulate, and so they urged the Agenetans and Megarians to send representatives to the Allies. In doing so, they increasingly complained about their mistreatment at the hands of Athens, stirred up resentment for Athens among the other Peloponnesians, and pressed the Spartans to take action. Finally, in July of 432 BC, in reaction to Allied pressure from these three events, Corsaira, Potidaea, and Megara, the Spartan ephors called a meeting of the Spartan Assembly in which they invited any member of the Peloponnesian League with a complaint against Athens to air out their grievances to the Spartan people. This is the only known occasion when Sparta's allies were invited to speak before the Spartan Assembly rather than at a meeting of the Peloponnesian League. This probably shows how reluctant the Spartans still were to go to war with Athens in the summer of 432 BC. 
The Spartans who led the meeting had to be influential members of the Garrisia and Ephors that had already decided that war against Athens was desirable, since we know that at least one Spartan king, Archidamus II, was not in favor of it, and the other, Pleistoanax, was still in exile. However, the majority of Spartans at that point were still not stirred to war, like their magistrates. Thucydides only provides the Corinthian speech, but the Megarians, Potidaeans, and Aginians probably had speeches too, because they all had complaints against the Athenians. According to Thucydides, quote, The Aginians did not openly send an embassy, but secretly, because they feared the Athenians, and no less than the Corinthians, played a leading role in fomenting war, claiming that they were no longer autonomous, as was laid down in the treaty. End quote. Although Agina and Athens were bitter rivals, the Aginetans had been defeated and were under the thumb of the Athenian Empire for around 25 years at this point. Apparently, they took advantage of the situation to also put in their complaints. Unfortunately, Thucydides does not supply us with any evidence as to whether the Aginetans had a legitimate complaint against recent Athenian action, and it cannot be said for certain what treaty is being referred to here. However, records indicate that the Aginetans only paid part of their foros for 432 BC, and so the Athenians may have taken action to recover the outstanding amount, which could have led to their complaint. But without full knowledge of the facts, it is impossible to apportion blame to either side. Still though, they were here at this meeting at Sparta, in secret, along with Megara and Corinth. The Corinthian ambassador probably was the last one to speak of the Allies hoping to capitalize on all of the complaints against Athens in order to change Spartan opinion. He had the hard task of persuading the Spartans, who were traditionally reluctant to leave their homes and go to war, to violate their oaths by launching a war that would breach the peace treaty. He began by complaining about Athenian aggression against them at Corsaira and Potidaea. Since none of Athens' actions technically breached the peace, the Corinthian ambassador, instead, then tried to persuade the Spartans that their traditional policy of prudence and reluctance to fight would be disastrous when it comes to the growing and dynamic power of Athens, and in doing so, he focused on the Athenians' character by drawing a sharp distinction between them and the Spartans. He says that the Athenians are active, innovative, daring, quick, enterprising, acquisitive, and opportunistic, while the Spartans are passive, cautious, conservative, timid, and slow. He painted a horrible picture of a state which was so ambitious that Athens would always be a menace to all of its neighbors, while condemning Spartans' inactivity up to that point, which he asserted has both injured Sparta's allies and strengthened Athens. However, as you might expect, he failed to mention that much of Athens' troubling behavior recently had been in reaction to actions which the Corinthians initiated. The Corinthian ambassador then proceeded to argue that Athens was growing stronger and stronger, and that it would only be a matter of time until they fell upon their neighbors and destroyed their freedom. And this was because Athens' perception of Sparta's inaction encourages them to commit further aggression, knowing that they will get away with it. Thucydides reports that the Corinthian ambassador concluded his speech by blaming Sparta's old-fashioned ways for their failure to perceive the effectiveness of Athenian innovation, and with a threat warning the Spartans that if they continued to remain passive while the Athenians were energetically active, they would soon find themselves outflanked and without their allies, who would turn to some other alliance. Once the Spartans could have stopped them easily, but now Athens has become such a formidable adversary that the allies' confidence in Sparta is shaken. The threat was empty though, 
as there was no other alliance to which they could turn that would effectively take on the Athenians. Furthermore, alliances in the Peloponnesian League were likely individual ones between Sparta and the individual state, and these were permanent, as no ally was allowed to secede unless it could claim that the Spartans had broken the terms of the alliance, thereby releasing the ally from its obligations to Sparta. It seems then that at least some of the allies had viewed potential Spartan inaction towards Athenian aggression as a legitimate reason to sever their alliance. Even if the Corinthians were bluffing, since Sparta's security from the Helots and its way of life rested on the alliances that the Spartans had created with the Peloponnesian League, even the suggestion of defections was alarming. Meanwhile, the Athenians had sent ambassadors to Sparta mysteriously on what Thucydides calls other business. However, we aren't told what that business was, and it was most likely a cover story so that the uninvited Athenian delegation could appear at the meeting to deliver a speech to the Spartans, after the others had made their complaints. Because if the Athenians had sent an official spokesman to the Spartan assembly to answer these complaints, then essentially they would have been conceding to Sparta the right to judge their behavior, rather than submitting it to some third party for arbitration. The Athenian ambassador who spoke, though, did not offer a defense of any of the charges that were levied against them, but he wanted to call attention to the great power of Athens and to warn them about the dangers of confronting such a powerful state. In doing so, he reminded the Spartans of the Athenians' extraordinary and courageous efforts in their military successes and opposition to Persia, which all Hellenes benefited from. In particular, he discussed Salamis, which proved to be the decisive blow in halting the Persian advance into the Peloponnesus as well as Marathon, which they fought without the help of the Peloponnesians. The Athenian ambassador continued, saying that they acquired their empire peacefully, honorably, and most importantly, because the Spartans were unwilling to prosecute the war with Persia to its conclusion. He argued that once they had their empire, Athens acted normally within the common practices of mankind in order to maintain it, as fear, honor, and self-interest motivate them as they would any others in their place. Fear, honor, and self-interest are matters that the Spartans would have understood well. He continued that the Athenians should not be criticized, but instead they deserve to be praised for acting with greater justice and moderation than most would with that amount of power. The Athenian ambassador then speculated that Sparta would be equally hated if they were to take their place, and perhaps more so because of Sparta's peculiar institutions that render them unfit to rule over the Hellenes. In conclusion, he advised the Spartans to decide carefully for war. Quote, While it is still open to us both to choose a path, we bid you not to dissolve the treaty or to break your oaths, but to have our differences settled by arbitration according to our agreement, or else we take the gods who heard the oaths to witness, and if you begin hostilities, whatever line of action you choose, we will endeavor to defend ourselves against you. End quote. The essence behind the Athenian speech was that the Peloponnesians shouldn't imagine that if they would go to war against them, it was going to be easy and quick. The Athenians are a different kind of state in that they don't need to fight in a hoplite battle. Because of their navy, long walls, money, and empire, they owned the sea, so the Peloponnesians wouldn't be able to touch them where it mattered most. The Athenian tone was not conciliatory, but businesslike and he concluded that all parties submit themselves to arbitration as the peace treaty required for their grievances. The Athenian speaker, probably orchestrated entirely by Pericles, seemed to have hoped that this combination of hardball and softball approaches would get the Spartans to back off and allow the situation to cool down without declaring war. Some scholars have read this speech as being deliberately provocative, intended to antagonize the Spartans into war, 
while others see it more as a deterrence by conveying a strategic message of strength, confidence, and determination. Well, if deterrence was what they had hoped for, they failed miserably, because the opinion of the majority of the Spartan assembly had now changed, as the combination of the Corinthian and Athenian speeches had now led them to believe that the Athenians were open aggressors, and that war must be declared at once. Afterwards, all outsiders were removed, and the Spartans alone continued the meeting of their assembly in order to discuss the issues at hand internally. Thucydides records two speeches made by the Spartans here, one by King Archidamus and another by Stenelatus, one of the ephors for that year, who happened to be presiding over the meeting on that day. Archidamus had a reputation of being wise and moderate. He was a personal friend of Pericles and clearly didn't want to go to war with Athens, in which he, as king, would be the commander-in-chief of the army but he realized that the speech of the Corinthians and Athenians had changed the mood in Sparta, and so he thought that if the Spartans simply voted on the question of war now, they would not only vote yes, but they would vote to go to war immediately. So he had the unenviable task of trying to persuade the Spartan assembly not to act rash, to ignore the impatient calls to action by their allies, and to wait for several years in order to gather the necessary money that would be needed to square off with Athens and their much larger pool of resources. And so, Archidamus urged caution and tried to convince his fellow Spartans to postpone taking any action until they could build up their financial and naval resources in order to wage war on equal terms. Essentially, he was backing up what the Athenian ambassador had argued, that this wouldn't be the quick and easy hoplite-style war that they had grown accustomed to. He emphasized that Sparta could only devastate Attica, which would not harm the Athenians materially as long as they had their walls with substantial financial resources, a naval empire, and command of the sea. And so the war would be tough and difficult against an enemy that was so wealthy, populous, and maritime. Furthermore, he said that if they go to war now, they would leave this war to their sons, meaning it would take a generation to finish this fight. His final advice was to, quote, send an embassy to the Athenians about Potidaea and about the issues, which our allies have claimed that they have been wronged, especially since the Athenians are prepared to submit to arbitration. It is illegal to attack them first, who are offering arbitration, as though they were definitely in the wrong. Meanwhile, do not omit preparation for war. This decision will be the best for yourselves and the most terrible to your opponents. End quote. Archidamus hoped that a combination of diplomatic discussions, arbitration, and seeing Sparta's military prepare for war might induce the Athenians to back down. But if not, Sparta will then enter the war much strengthened. Then, the e Senelatus, who opposed Archidamus' appeal for a delay in declaring war, gave a very short, laconic speech, saying that he is just a simple Spartan, and that all he knows is that the Athenians are hurting their allies, and it's their duty to stop them. His speech, though, contained no detailed arguments to counter the fears expressed by Archidamus about a long, exhaustive war. The tenor of his whole speech is effectively revealed in his final exhortation. Quote, Therefore, Spartans, vote for war and the honor of Sparta. Do not allow the Athenians to become stronger. Do not betray our allies, but let us, with the help of the gods, advance to meet the aggressor. End quote. Then, since he was the E4 in charge, he called for the vote by acclamation, in which both sides banged on their shields and yelled to indicate their position. However, they weren't able to tell which side had banged their shields the loudest, so they had to resort to Plan B, which was taking a physical count. Stenelatus said, quote, All Spartans who are of the opinion that the treaty has been broken and that Athens is guilty, leave your seats and go there, 
pointing out a certain place, and all who are of the opposite opinion, there, end quote. The result was a very large majority were in favor of the war, probably more so than before because those who were against war at first, when it was semi-anonymous, didn't want to show themselves against it when they were physically divided, because that's not what brave Spartans do. In addition, Thucydides hints that the E4 knew right away that there was a majority for war, but he wanted everybody else to see how big that majority was in order to drive the point home, which would explain why they took a physical count, an event that was a very unusual occurrence in the Spartan assembly. Regardless, the force of Senelatus' impassioned, patriotic appeal won the day, and the Spartans voted for war. Thucydides here gives his opinion once again of what he believes is the truest explanation of why the Spartans voted for war. Quote, The Spartans voted that the treaty had been broken, and that war should be declared, not so much because they were persuaded by the speeches of their allies, but because they were afraid of the further growth of Athenian power, seeing that most of Greece was already subject to them. End quote. It's at this point in Thucydides' narrative that he digresses a bit to tell how Athens grew so powerful after Persia's defeat in what is commonly referred to as the Pentacontatia, or the period of 50 years. After having voted for war in their assembly, the Spartans then consulted the Delphic Oracle, where they received Apollo's support. During the upcoming war, the Athenians neither stayed away from Delphi, nor were they debarred from visiting it, but access to and the status of Delphi was clearly pro-Spartan and would be a point of contention later in the war. Anyways, once they were assured that Apollo supported their cause, the Spartans then summoned a Peloponnesian League meeting for the Allies to cast their votes. Not all of the Allies came though, and presumably those who remained at home disapproved of its purpose. The Corinthians had already anticipated this by previously sending Corinthian, Agenetan, and Megarian representatives to all of the other Allies, urging them to go to war. The Corinthian ambassador again spoke last in this meeting, but with considerably more restraint this time, because in order to win over the small states of the Peloponnesian interior, who were not directly concerned with Athens' naval threat, he had to convince them that war was in their best interest. In doing so, he concentrated on Athens' ability to operate a closed sea policy. Quote, Those of us, who have already had dealings with the Athenians, do not need to be taught to be on our guard against them. But those who live inland and not on the trade routes must learn that, if they do not help those by the sea, they will experience greater difficulties in the transportation of their own produce to the sea and in the bringing back of imports from the sea. End quote. And so, the Corinthian ambassador was arguing that the Athenians were capable of inflicting economic damage against all of their economies, even if they are situated in the interior, and their action against Megara should be seen in this context. Two arguments were therefore emphasized. First, that the states of the interior depended on Corinth and the other coastal polis to secure the imports that they needed from outside of the Peloponnese and to market their exports. And second, that the resources of the Peloponnesians could guarantee victory. In regards to the latter, the Corinthian ambassador optimistically asserted that the Peloponnesians could raise enough money by contributions and by loans from Delphi and Olympia in order to finance a fleet, and that with practice they would soon equal the Athenians at sea. He also added that the Peloponnesians could sway Athenian allies to row for their fleets with the temptation of higher pay, and that they could establish fortified posts throughout Attica unimpeded. We have discussed in previous episodes how offerings of silver and gold objects and other valuable materials had accumulated at Delphi and Olympia to such a degree that these sanctuaries developed unique repositories of ready-made capital, 
And so the Corinthian ambassador here is alluding to the fact that the vast wealth lying in the temples or shrines of any Peloponnesian polis, in theory, could be called upon, if necessary, to support the war. He also claimed that the god of Delphi, meaning Apollo, had sanctioned this war, which is proof that the treaty had already been violated by Athens. Finally, he applauded Sparta for their vote for war and attacked the Athenians' ambitions, as a tyrant state, to bring the whole of Greece under their dominion, and he held out the vision of themselves, meaning everyone in the Peloponnesian League, as the liberators of Greece. And so he concluded by calling for unity in the face of Athenian aggression, because, quote, We must believe that the tyrant city that has been established in Hellas has been established against all alike, with a program of universal empire, part fulfilled, part in contemplation. Let us then attack and reduce it, and win future security for ourselves and freedom for the Hellenes, who are now enslaved. End quote. And with that, all of the speeches had concluded, and the Spartans took a vote on the matter from their allied representatives. Thucydides reports that the result was that a majority voted for war, though not a large majority. And so, not all of the allies must have concluded that war was inevitable, that it was just, that it would be easy, or that it was even necessary, as the Corinthians had argued. It was now July or August, 432 BC, and there was still quite a lot of time left for the favorable weather needed to sail to Potidaea and assist in their besiegement, or to campaign against Attica. Although the Athenian grain crop had long since been harvested, a September invasion would have been the perfect time to inflict significant damage on grapevines and olive trees, and to destroy farmhouses throughout Attica, significantly impacting the following year's harvest. But the Spartans or their allies didn't march into Attica to fight the Athenians until March of 431 BC. It took nine months for the Spartans to fulfill what they had just voted for, probably because after the Spartan people voted for war, following the anger spurred on by Sphenolatus' speech, when they had a chance to think it over, they thought that maybe Archidamus knew what he was talking about after all. This is because, although Archidamus was an old family friend of Pericles, he was by no means the only Spartan hesitant to fight Athens. Surely, some in the Garrosia and some of the Ephors were of the same opinion. Regardless, the Spartans sent numerous delegations to Athens to try and smooth things over during these nine months. Thucydides writes, quote, During this time, they kept sending embassies to the Athenians and making complaints so that they might have the best excuse to make war if the Athenians paid no heed to them, end quote. This is reinforcing Thucydides' belief that the Spartans wanted to make war to check Athens' growing power, but didn't want to publicly admit it, and instead focused on the complaints of their allies to press their claims that Athens had broken the Thirty Years' Peace. These delegations also allowed the Spartans more time to prepare for war, as Archidamus had suggested to them. The first Spartan mission, probably in late August, made the demand that there did not need to be a war if the Athenians would simply drive out the curse of the goddess, referring to the curse of the Alcmeonidae. Since Pericles was an Alcmeonidae from his mother's side, this was clearly an attempt to weaken his popularity and possibly to even get him out of Athenian politics if the people blamed him for the war. Well, the Spartans knew the Athenians weren't going to do this, and the Athenians didn't, so they were engaging in psychological warfare personally against Pericles, who they saw rightfully as the driving force behind Athens' policies, and they wanted to make his political situation as uncomfortable and cause him as much trouble as possible. But Plutarch says that this attempt here actually brought about the opposite result, as Pericles won even greater confidence and honor amongst the Athenian people, since they now believed that the Spartans hated and feared Pericles above all other men. 
As an aside, it's at this point in Thucydides that he again makes a short digression to talk about Chilon and the history of the curse of the Alcmeonidae, which we discussed in episode 24. Anyways, the Athenians responded in turn with similar demands of their own. For example, they requested that the Spartans purify the curse of the goddess of the brass house, a reference to the impieties involved in the death by starvation decades earlier of Pausanias, who as we saw in episode 40, had taken refuge in the goddess's temple. This intended to recall the deeds of a Spartan king who had treasonably went over to the Persians. The Athenians didn't just stop there, though, as they also demanded the purification of the curse of Tenarum, where some helots had been murdered in the temple of Poseidon, for which they believed that the great earthquake at Sparta a few decades earlier was retribution. This intended to call attention to the fact that the Spartans, who claimed to be waging the war in order to free the Greeks from Athens' grip, ruled despotically over a large number of Greeks in their own land. Following this, Sparta sent other envoys making various demands for the Athenians to withdraw their troops from Potidaea, to leave Agina autonomous, and to withdraw the Megarian decree. But after they settled on one, sometime during the winter of 432-431 BC, the second Spartan mission was a more serious effort at avoiding the war. They claimed that there would be no war if the Athenians simply just got rid of the Megarian decree. That really changed the situation in Athens, and as we discussed earlier, Plutarch lets us know that there was strong opposition to going to war on the part of some over the embargo laid on the Megarians. Pericles remained firm though, insisting on the arbitration required by the treaty, but he could not ignore the pressure for a response. So in defense of Athens' actions, he sent a formal response to the official charges that had ostensibly provoked the Megarian embargo. Quote, this decree was proposed by Pericles and contained a reasonable and humane justification of this policy. End quote. In it, Pericles explained his refusal to rescind the embargo, referring to an obscure Athenian law that forbade him from taking down the tablet upon which the decree was inscribed. The Spartans angrily countered, quote, Then don't take it down, turn the tablet around, for there is no law against that. End quote. But Pericles held fast, and because of his political skills, he still was able to keep the majority on his side. At last, the Spartans sent a third and final diplomatic mission to Athens, in which they told them to forget everything that they had said before and deliver this ultimatum. Quote, The Spartans want peace, and this is possible, if the Athenians want peace, if you allow independence to the Greeks. End quote. This effectively amounted to a demand for the dissolution of the Athenian Empire, which seems to invoke Thucydides' truest reason for the war that the Spartans were fearful of the growth of Athenian power. Obviously, the Spartans did not expect the Athenians to give up their empire, but they wanted to promote themselves once again as the liberators of the Greeks against these imperialistic, aggressive Athenians who were destroying everybody's autonomy and making it impossible for everybody to live comfortably. In the final Athenian debate, after the Third Embassy, many Athenians still held out the prospect of negotiation and spoke as though this wasn't an ultimatum, and as if the points previously raised in the second embassy were still on the table. Pericles would have preferred the argument to focus on the obviously unacceptable ultimatum, but his opponents were able to set the terms of the debate. Many speeches were made in favor of the embargo being a hindrance to peace, arguing that it needed to be withdrawn, but Thucydides dismissed their views and only reports the speech of Pericles, which probably reflects his own analysis of the situation. Pericles began by reminding the Athenians that the Spartans were wrong and inappropriate in their behavior, because they had submitted themselves for arbitration and the Spartans refused it. 
Pericles then made the case as to why it was necessary not to withdraw the Megarian decree in the face of Spartan refusal for arbitration. He expressed his belief that the decree was of little importance in its own right, and that he would have gladly yielded to this if the complaint was submitted to arbitration and it was legally found that he was in the wrong. But, as he argued, the decree was being used by the Spartans in order to test Athenian nerve. If they were to withdraw it, they would show that they were afraid to fight the Spartans, and if they give way on this one point, the Spartans would be provoked to even greater demands and would grow even more dictatorial and threatening, until finally Athens would find themselves under Sparta's yoke. And so, he argued that the concession of the decree would effectively invite direct Spartan interference into the affairs of Athens, which would make it so that they would need their permission in running their own affairs. Pericles concluded his speech by advising the Athenians to accept that this war was now inevitable, and as such, he proposed that the Athenians should send a reply point by point to Sparta's demands in a quid pro quo sort of response. First, the Athenians would repeal the Megarian decree, but only if the Spartans would exempt the Athenians and their allies from their periodic expulsion of all foreigners from Sparta, an act known as Xenalasia. This occurred because Spartan magistrates had the authority, whenever they so pleased, to expel any person who they claimed posed a threat to public order and Spartan morality. In a larger sense, while foreigners were allowed in Sparta for religious festivals and missions of state, they were generally not permitted to live in the area, though special exceptions could be given to friends and allies of Sparta, like Xenophon, who wrote about Xenolasia in his treatise called The Constitution of the Spartans. Second, in regards to giving the Greeks their independence, Pericles says, quote, We will give independence to the cities if they had independence at the time of the treaty, and when the Spartans allow their own allies to have independence which fits in with the Allies' wishes and not with Sparta's interests, end quote. His request that Sparta must recognize the autonomy of its allied city-states implied that Sparta's hegemony was also ruthless. Finally, Pericles says, quote, As regards to arbitration, we are willing to submit to it in accordance with the treaty, and we will not start a war, but we will resist those who do, end quote. Unsurprisingly, by the end of his speech in the Ecclesia, Pericles had managed to convince the Athenian people that the real nature of Sparta's demands was the dissolution of the Athenian Empire, and so any angry over the Megarian decree had ceased, for now. They then sent an embassy to Sparta with their counter-proposals, as Pericles had suggested. Naturally, the terms were rejected by the Spartans, and with neither side willing to back down, the stage was now set for war. This was the last formal communication between the two superpowers, before the outbreak of the war in the spring of 431 BC. Though some of these exchanges between Sparta and Athens were sincere, most involved nothing more than pious posturing. These interchanges make three things clear though. First, Pericles was firmly entrenched as the leader of the Athenians and as the framer of Athenian policy. Second, the Megarian decree was of considerable importance to the Spartans. And third, both Athens and Sparta were split about the desirability of war. If this is the case then, why did the two sides make the decisions that they did that ultimately led to war? Despite what the Corinthians argued, the power of Athens had not grown significantly since the Thirty Years' Peace was signed, nor had Athenian foreign policy been overtly aggressive, especially with Thurii and westward expansion. In fact, Athens' only increase in military might came as the result of their alliance with Corsaira, which itself was made in response to Corinth's actions against Spartan advice. And even then, the Athenians acted reluctantly and defensively, seeking only to prevent the Corinthians from causing a major shift in the balance of power. 
But people in crisis throughout history have often been moved by the fear of future threats, honor, and self-interest. The majority of Spartans were probably in favor of a war with Athens because they did not believe that this war would be any different than what they had fought before, meaning it would be quick and easy and not long and arduous. They would have felt this way because they were confident in their military capabilities, and by the fact that they had just marched into Attica 14 years earlier, and the Athenians couldn't stop them. And so, Sparta wasn't driven by a fear of Athens per se, but for the fear that Athens had incited in their allies. And it was their allies' fear that drove Spartan self-interest. This can best be seen in Sparta's refusal to arbitrate, because their whole system depended upon their allies being able to count on the Spartans to protect them from a third party when it was necessary. So if the Spartans left it up to some arbitrator to take care of them, then the fundamental reason for the Peloponnesian League, which gave them their power and their security, would disappear. They also had to worry that if they did not do what the Corinthians, Megarians, and their other allies wanted them to do, then they might leave the League, which itself would lead to its dissolution. And Spartan honor, or their conception of themselves, depended not only on the recognition of that leadership, but also upon the security that the League brings in them maintaining their unique way of life. And so the Spartans were willing to go to war to serve the interests of their allies. It would not be the last time in history that the leader of an alliance would find itself being led by its allies to pursue policies that it would not have chosen for itself. Thucydides writes that at the commencement of the war, both sides were full of young men whose inexperience made them eager to take up arms and fight. Throughout Greece, predictions were being made and oracles were being recited. In the jockeying for position that went on during the months leading up to the formal declaration of war, the Spartans seemed to have come out ahead in popular opinion. Though it was they who had declared war, the Greek world was inclined to see imperialist Athens as the aggressor, and some Athenians even agreed, as they criticized Pericles for his combative stance and continued to advocate for the nullification of the Megarian decree. Despite the fact that they brutally oppressed the Helots, Sparta did not keep as tight of a hold on the members of the Peloponnesian League as did Athens on those of its empire. In a culture that prized autonomy as much as the Greeks did, consequently, it was possible for Sparta to put itself forward in opposition to Athens as the champion of freedom, as the state that had never itself endured a tyrant, and that opposed tyranny throughout Greece. When war broke out, Thucydides writes, quote, Popular opinion shaped up in favor of the Spartans by far, especially since they had proclaimed that they were going to liberate Greece. Everywhere, city and citizen alike were eager, if at all possible, to join with them in word and deed, and everyone felt that any plan would come to a standstill if he himself could not take part in it. That is how angry most people were at Athens. Some because they wanted to rid themselves of Athenian rule, and others because they were frightened lest they fall under that rule. End quote. According to Thucydides, Spartan allies included all of the Poles in the Peloponnese, except the Argives and the Achaeans, who were neutral, though in Achaea the state of Pelene did join the Spartan side, and their example soon afterwards brought the rest into the fold. Outside of the Peloponnese, Spartan allies included the Megarians on the Isthmus, the Boeotians, Phocians, and Locrians in central Greece, the Ambraciates, Anactorians, and Leucadians along the western coast of Greece, and Thera and Milos amongst the Cyclotic islands in the southern Aegean. In Sicily, the Spartans were allied to Syracuse and all of the Dorian cities, except Camarina, and to Locri and their own colony Teros in southern Italy. The Athenian alliance included around 200 tributary members of their empire. Among this assortment of allies, there no doubt were some who were enthusiastic to fight for the Athenians, but many, if not most, were reluctant. 
as they could expect to gain nothing from the war, and some even imagined that they would enjoy autonomy if Sparta could bring an end to Athens' imperial pretensions. Their military contributing allies included the Aegean islands of Chios and Lesbos, which provided ships as they still maintained their independence, the Plataeans, the Mycenaeans and Alpactus, most of the Arcanians that bordered the Corinthian Gulf, the Thessalians in northern Greece, at times, and the Zacynthians and the Corsirians, who were islanders off of the western coast of Greece. Their tributary allies included those in Caria, including the nearby Dorian cities, those in Ionia, the Hellespont and Thrace, and those among the Cyclades, except for Milos and Thera, and among what Thucydides calls the islands that lie between the Peloponnesus and Crete. Each side not only differed in their temperament, but also in the nature of their military strengths and resources. The Athenians had a great deal more money than the Peloponnesians, and their navy was incomparably superior. Although Thucydides shows his awareness about the importance of financial strength and military strategy, he rarely gives details. An important exception is his summary of the Athenian financial situation at the beginning of the war, which he put into a speech given by Pericles. Combining this with what can be seen on the tribute lists, it seems that Athens had a reserve of some 6,000 talents of silver in the treasury of Athena on the Acropolis, another 500 talents in uncoined gold and silver, and 40 talents worth of gold plating that covered the massive statue of Athena that could be removed and melted down in an emergency. In addition, a special contingency reserve of 1,000 talents was set aside, and they could expect an annual income of around 400 talents from internal revenue and 600 talents from the pharos of their allies and other imperial sources, for a sum of around 1,000 talents annually. Just to review, a talent represented a specified weight of silver, and one talent was the cost of paying the crew of a trireme for one month. The Athenians themselves possessed over 300 triremes fit for service, as well as an unspecified number of others that could be repaired and used in case of need, and they also could count on a hundred or so from their allies, Chios, Lesbos, and Corsaira. Those 300 Athenian triremes would require 200 crew members each, so about 60,000 men in total. The Athenian fleet had gained much experience throughout the 5th century BC, both from fighting and in peace for maintaining annual patrols in the Aegean. Although its nucleus was made up of Athenians, the numbers needed to equip 300 ships were too large to be supplied from the citizen body alone, and so a considerable proportion of their rowers had been recruited from the islands, or men who had few chances to earn a livelihood at home were glad to earn good pay in service of the Athenian fleet. Financially, the Peloponnesians were in a much weaker position than the Athenians, so much that Pericles was actually justified when he told the Athenians that the Peloponnesians had no money, either public or private. In particular, Sparta was at the other extreme from Athens, with citizens who lived off of the land that was farmed for them by their helots, and who made contributions in kind to the messes at which they ate. Most of Sparta's allies were also agricultural communities, and although Corinth was better off than the others, they had no reserve fund. In fact, collectively, the Peloponnesians had no financial reserves and no common war chest. According to one inscription, the modest contributions given to the Spartans for the war effort was a total equivalent to about 13 Athenian talents. And so, they lacked the essential financial basis necessary for naval warfare. It wouldn't be until much later in the war, after quite a significant amount of Persian subsidies were secured, that the Peloponnesians could keep large fleets at sea for long periods of time. But at this point, 
the Peloponnesians relied almost exclusively on the Corinthian navy and could not put much more than a hundred ships in the water. Furthermore, their crews did not compare in skill and experience with those of the Athenians, as the first decade of the war would prove over and over again. But it was on the ground, both infantry and cavalry, where the Peloponnesians had the more significant advantage. For the Peloponnesian League, cavalry was supplied by the Boeotians, the Phocrians, and the Locrians of central Greece. The heart of the alliance, though, was the formidable, heavily armed infantry of the Peloponnesians and the Boeotians. An advancing phalanx of Spartan hoplites wearing their distinctive red tunics and sporting the dreaded lambda, for Lacidaemon, on their shields, threw terror into Sparta's enemies. The Spartans had spent their entire lives training for this war, while the Helots and the Perioikoi attended to the business of daily life. And so the citizen farmer soldier of the average Greek city-state, at this point in time at least, was no match for the professional Spartan hoplite. The combined infantry of the Peloponnesians and the Boeotians numbered at least 30,000 men and would significantly outnumber those of the Athenians, who themselves could field a force of about 13,000 hoplites, 1,200 cavalry, including 200 mounted archers, and 1,600 unmounted archers. In addition, the Athenians had a reserve force of about 16,000 stationed in the garrisons and on the battlements of the walls that connected Athens and Piraeus. While the hoplites were Athens' best ground fighting force, aged 20 to 39, this reserve force was composed of the oldest and youngest levies and the medics who had their own heavy armor. This 16,000 number was perhaps broken down into 10,000 of those aged 40 to 59 and 18 to 19, plus 6,000 medics. Essentially, the Peloponnesians had about a 3 to 1 superiority in hoplites, with those of Sparta being widely regarded as the best in all of Greece, while the Athenians had a 3 to 1 superiority in ships and a far greater skill in both sailors and tactics. Accordingly, Athens hoped to conduct as much of the war as possible at sea, while the Spartans would focus their attention on the land. The Athenians were fighting essentially a defensive war, whose goal was to preserve the empire that the Spartans sought to destroy. For Athens, a stalemate would amount to victory, whereas Sparta needed something more. The Spartans expressly stated that their war aim was to liberate all of Greece from Athenian dominion, and this goal could only be achieved by the destruction of Athens' empire, which required a total victory. This meant that they had to destroy Athens' key imperial resources, including their walls and their fleet. Therefore, Spartan strategy had to be primarily offensive in order to achieve their war aims, the cornerstone of which was a land invasion of Attica. The Spartans believed that these invasions would either provoke the Athenians to fight a hoplite battle in order to protect their crops, which would lead to their inevitable defeat, or if the Athenians didn't fight them, they would destroy their crops, and thus they would be starved into submission. This conventional strategy of invading an enemy's homeland with a hoplite army had been very effective in the past 250 years, and had been spectacularly successful just 14 years earlier when the Spartans forced the Athenians into making substantial concessions that brought about the end of the First Peloponnesian War. And so the Spartans believed that they could easily destroy Athenian power within a few years by just ravaging their land. The Spartans' biggest misjudgment, though, in their pre-war strategy, was their failure to realize just how much damage the Athenian fleet could cause to the Peloponnesian coastal cities with seaborne raids. In addition to their conventional land strategy, there was also an alternative adventurous strategy that the Spartans could employ by encouraging Athenian allies to revolt, as this would deprive them of their annual tribute, upon which their strength depended. 
This meant that the Spartans had to become a naval power and be willing to fight further afield in order to support the Allies in their revolt from Athens. This strategy, although it was implemented at times in the early years of the war, was not well supported for a number of reasons. First, it required the acquisition of the necessary finances to build a fleet and pay the crews. Second, there was the difficulty of recruiting sailors from the Athenian Empire in time of war. And third, the Spartans were always very reluctant to commit their hoplites to fight in far-off places. And so the combination of their fear for the Athenian navy, and their belief that it was only a matter of time before the Athenians surrendered, ensured that the conventional strategy predominated in Sparta's military strategy in the early years of the war. On the other hand, the policies of the Athenians rested on Pericles' unique strategy for fighting this war. In any war, there are three possible outcomes. Victory, defeat, or stalemate. But even a stalemate can be construed as a moral victory, or a defeat, depending upon one's aims. In particular, Pericles realized that the Athenians had little chance of winning a decisive war in the conventional manner, meaning an invasion of the Peloponnese and the destruction of Sparta. Since the Athenian land army would be destroyed by the superior foot soldiers of the Peloponnesian League. And so, Pericles' war aim was shaped by this knowledge. On the other hand, Sparta's war aim was to destroy the Athenian Empire, and so if the Athenians could survive their attacks and retain possession of the empire, a stalemate would count as a victory for them and a failure for the Spartans, especially if they could be made to seem as the aggressors. The Peloponnesians' principal handicap was that they lacked the funds to sustain long conflicts, and since most were farmers who needed to be back for the harvest, they also would not be able to mobilize for long campaigns. Although most Athenians were farmers as well, they had a vast maritime trade network and much more experience on the sea. Pericles, in his first speech as recorded by Thucydides, says, quote, The Peloponnesians are men who farm their own land and do not have money, either individually or publicly. They lack experience of lengthy and overseas wars. Most importantly, they will be hindered by the lack of money, end quote. Because of all of these economic and military factors that we have laid out, Pericles envisioned a completely different defensive strategy than what was the usual pattern of hoplite warfare on land between Greek city-states, aiming to leverage Athens' unique character and power. In fact, his defensive strategy had never been utilized before in Greek history, probably because no other state before the coming of Athens' imperial democracy had the means to attempt it. And so their strategy rested on their magnificent navy, which enabled them to rule over a sea empire that sustained both their naval supremacy and their ability to obtain whatever goods they needed by trade or by purchase. Pericles had already turned Athens itself into a de facto island by constructing the long walls that connected the port and naval base at Piraeus. With the current state of limited siege warfare in ancient Greece, Athens was practically impenetrable. And so if the Athenians chose to withdraw within their walls, they could remain there safely, so long as they maintained their supremacy at sea. Pericles also believed that the Peloponnesian fleet currently could not threaten the Athenian fleet, nor would they easily be able to acquire the skill necessary to challenge Athens at sea, especially if the Athenian fleet limit their opportunities to practice. And so, in Pericles' defensive strategy, the Athenians therefore were to reject battle on land, abandon their homes in the Attic countryside, and retreat behind their walls. The Spartans could invade and do whatever harm they liked to their fields and their property, but the Athenians would be able to live through whatever they did without taking casualties, because the Athenian navy would be able to bring in all of the grain and food that they needed via the sea, specifically from Thrace in the Black Sea region. 
Furthermore, Pericles calculated that the enemy army would eventually tire of ravaging the land when nobody came out to fight. In response, the Athenian navy would launch a series of retaliatory amphibious raids against Peloponnesian coastal towns, as well as opportune attacks on the Peloponnesian fleet. They also could lead out an army to devastate the lands of the Megarid once the Peloponnesians had returned home from their invasions of Attica. This offensive part of Pericles' strategy reflected Spartan strategy, and presumably, apart from boosting Athenian morale after the destruction of Attica, was designed to emphasize Athens' lack of provocative aggression by merely responding in kind to Sparta's actions. This was a strategy intended to exhaust the Spartan and allied army, not physically, but psychologically, and to demonstrate to them that they were powerless against Athens. Eventually, Pericles believed that Sparta's allies would begin to splinter, which would lead them to come to terms with peace, and Athens could look forward to an era of peace more firmly founded on their enemies' awareness of their inabilities to touch Athens. Pericles' defensive strategy would come at a significant financial cost, though. His ultimate goal was to bring about a change of opinion in Sparta over the untenability of this war, and it appears that he did not anticipate that the Spartans would hold out for very long, surely no more than three campaigning seasons, as it would be widely unreasonable for Sparta to continue to beat its fists fruitlessly against the Athenian defensive strategy. But Pericles would be mistaken. At the same time, after the war kicked off and Pericles implemented this strategy, the Spartans were at first baffled that any Greek would follow through with this. And so they conjectured that the Athenians would grow restless, cooped up in their overcrowded city throughout the campaigning season, and seeing their land being ravaged, they would be unable to tolerate the frustration. They believed that either the Athenians would seek peace, or they would overrule Pericles and come out to fight. They too would be mistaken. In foreseeing that the enemy would give up after a couple of years, both sides miscalculated badly. Neither side won at war, but neither side was ready to yield for various reasons. In the process, mistakes of judgment were made on both sides, and both sides stumbled into war as a consequence of their misunderstandings of what was going on. So whose fault was it? Well, Thucydides' narrative shows Athens technically being in the right, as they were willing to go to arbitration over their grievances when Sparta was not. Informally, it was the Peloponnesians who declared war, and thus broke the peace. At the same time, though, the Athenians did not try very hard themselves to avoid war. The Athenians, and Pericles in particular, no doubt realized that the Spartans could and would not tolerate their continuing and growing power, and so sooner or later they would have to fight for it anyway. And so they adopted a high-risk strategy in the hope that the inevitable war would come in circumstances in which they were better prepared than their enemies were, and in which they could claim to be in the right. Both of these were fulfilled. Thucydides' judgment, then, about the truest reason seems to be accurate, but it should be complemented with Athens' willingness to provoke war. Still, on the basis that no sensible power deliberately provokes a defensive war, but rather is forced into war to defend itself, the Spartans should be blamed for the outbreak of the war, as it was indeed to be a war over the power of Athens. On the next episode, we will cover the first two years of the war, as both the Athenians and the Spartans implemented their war strategies. There also will be a famous funeral oration over the war dead, as well as one unexpected development. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 91, Attrition and Plague. (laughs) 